You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Sundari Malcolm is the director of BIPOC Wellbeing and a host for The Dinner Party. At 27, and after seven years of being her caregiver, Sundari lost her mother to breast cancer. At 31 years old, she lost her father to brain cancer. Since then, Sundari has dedicated her life to the support of caregivers and all those managing life after loss. Outside of her work as the director of BIPOC Wellbeing for TDP, Sundari is a birth and death doula. She is a yoga and meditation teacher and has just finished traveling around the U.S. and Canada in a converted school bus for two years. Writing about racial injustice on her blog, namasteusa.blog, and talking about designing your life post-pandemic on her podcast, The Collective Reset. She is now a recent expat to the island of Curacao. So welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on. I'm honored to have you on. I'm honored (laughs) that you came on my podcast. Seriously. Like as I've been learning more about all of the amazing things you're involved in, I'm like, this is just beautiful. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited for our chat. Yeah. And we have a lot to chat about because you live such a beautiful, open, expansive life in my view. And I just, I want to hear all about it. So tell me a little bit about who you are and what brought you to who you are today. Hmm. So my legal name is Ayana Sundari. Um, Sundari was given to me by my Swami, my teacher, who was Swami Satchidananda, and he named me that at birth. So some people know of Swami Satchidananda as the Woodstock guru, um, or as the Swami that helped to bring yoga to the West. Um, but he had a community in the 70s that my mother was a part of in Connecticut. Um, and then it became what is now known as Yogaville, which is in Buckingham, Virginia. Um, and so I was raised between Yogaville and Harlem, New York, which I think once you know me, you realize those two, those two sides of my personality. Um, and it was an amazing way to grow up. You know, I went to school in Harlem and in Manhattan and then spent holidays and my summers in Yogaville. Um, and so Sundri is my Sanskrit name and what I most often go by. Um, I, you know, lived, I think, while a very interesting life with regards to yoga and wellness, it was also a very hard life being raised by a single Black woman um, and not having a great relationship with my father. And then arriving at the point where they both received terminal diagnoses within three years of each other. Um, and being a caregiver for my mother for 10 years through my 20s, um, and then my father, um, and the differences between both. And I think it's what really led me into wanting to care for caregivers and wanting to be part of the brief world was one in dealing with my mother, just how lonely you felt as a caregiver. And I hated the books that were out there. And I had tried a couple of therapists who hadn't grieved themselves. And so it felt very kind of textbooky. And then to go from that to caregiving for someone I was estranged from, but doing it because I wanted to feel better in my future self and recognizing in that sense, how complicated grief could be. And you could 
be grieving someone that you didn't necessarily like, and yet it was still as painful as the person that you loved and were raised with, and but that nobody was talking about those things. Um, and so I think that really led me into working more in yoga and in wellness. Um, I had been raised in it, but it wasn't what I was doing. I was actually a PR girl uh, for record labels and decided that I really wanted to be trained. Um, and so started in yoga and meditation and got worked into doula work, which for people who aren't um, accustomed to what that word is, it really means to serve or to care for. Um, and every culture has doulas. It's something that's become a career now, but it's gone back in our ancestry for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're the people that help move you through transitions. And I was working in prenatal yoga, which led me to labor and birth doula. And then in my own grief work, um, I started thinking about the transitions of both and how both had been painted as something that was traumatic and something that was something we should fear. And the stories that we tend to tell are the ones that are so ugly and through generations are just scaring the shit out of people. And how different could it be if you were really paying attention to the grace that both of them deserved and the kindness and the ability for both people, whether you were laboring or dying, to understand that you were the one who held power in that and that it should be exactly how you want it to be. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I think I arrived here because. I was supposed to and because I don't think you can go through loss like that at least for me and not think about why right um and not think about what I learned from it and how there are other people exactly like me grief is collective especially right mm. now and so it couldn't have been that it was just me that was lost so. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the collective grief that you just mentioned? Yeah, I think, you know, 2021, 2020, I mean, what a time in history that we're all a part of right now. Yeah. And one of the things that I've tried, I, I'm a big believer in the power of words. And so pandemic and COVID, it had always kind of been so fear induced. And I had started really thinking about it as this reset. And one of the things that I hope we are resetting from is this idea that we are separate in grief and loss. Mm. And usually people associate loss with personal loss, personal human loss. And while it's true, there's also all of these forms of acute trauma. When we think about all of the things people have lost right now, whether it was childcare, whether it was routine, partnerships, relationships, jobs, and then when you think about what the BIPOC community, what brown and black folks are going through right now, right. and the idea of we can't scroll through feeds without seeing people who look like us being murdered in the streets, yeah. there is a grief that comes with that. And so while there's levels to all of our loss right now, there, I don't know of a person that's not touched in some way. And for the first time, understanding that we're all sitting in some form of grief. And so we all should be thinking about not just how to manage ourselves, but 
how we're showing up for other people right now. So when this reset is over, that something better is happening than what was happening before. Yeah. Do you see signs of that occurring on a large scale? I do. I mean, you know, I think one of the most beautiful things that I've noticed throughout this time is what virtual spaces have grown into. And while I know that there's still yeah. the like dark holes of, of the virtual world and the like Twitter, and the, tw- no. the Twitter haters, <laughs> like I get it, but I've also sat in spaces that I feel like formally they just didn't exist. So when I think about the dinner party, which is, I'm a director of BIPOC while being there. And what we started noticing before the dinner party used to be this org that connected people through physical spaces. So you would go to someone's house or meet in a private space over a meal and talk about your shared loss. Well, the reset happened and obviously that wasn't going to be what we could continue with. And so we started creating virtual tables where people are meeting across the world. Wow. What's been amazing is usually if you were someone who sat in Fort Worth, Texas, let's say, and please don't hate me if you're from Fort Worth, but sometimes people would show up and out of hundreds of applications from Texas, they were the only one in Fort Worth, which means we can't connect you to anyone because there's no one in your city. Yeah. Now that barrier is gone. So there are people that are sitting in Istanbul and Fort Worth and Vancouver that can all sit together and talk about their loss, where usually they were isolated. You know, I'm seeing in spaces where people who used to be really afraid to speak into their pain and loss now can turn their camera off and feel safe because they're sitting at home, right? And people who used to be introverts are finding their voice in pain, which is vital. Mm. I think we're looking at there needs this understanding that BIPOC need their own spaces, that affinity, we need affinity spaces so that people can feel safe. I don't think that was something we were thinking about or talking to before. I think different groups of people hung out with themselves because they understood that, right? Right, right. But did organizations as a whole get that? I don't know before this. Did, were there wellness spaces, whether some of them are performative or not, they're at least putting them in their programming, right? That here is an hour for you to come together as a community. Mm-hmm. Who's in that is who grows that organically to become something beautiful. But I think all of this has grown and flourished because we've been forced to sit alone for the most part and to sit with our shit, which I think makes people inventive. <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on that. And it resonates with me. It's interesting, though, because some people that I speak with, they don't share this perspective. And Mm. some of the people that I speak with who think this is a really shameful period in our history, and they just they're worried about what it's going to do to us as a as a country and people are separated and and I have had a different experience. I have really similarly been in spaces where people have gotten so creative about just what we can accomplish in Mm. online spaces. And I have definitely, I've been reflecting on just the fact that I make less time for things and people Mm. who take 
a lot of energy from me who Mm -hmm. don't align with me, you know, and that has been really powerful. And I feel like, because I had boundary issues, it was Mm -hmm. hard for me to set boundaries in place. Whereas Mm -hmm. now it's been a lot easier for me to put boundaries in place and, and just kind of like curate the space and the life and the experience that I want to have. So I really appreciate that. Can you tell, um, just for the listeners, tell us about the dinner party. Sure. So the dinner party was started by two women, uh, Carla Fernandez and Lennon Flowers. And they started this um, in California. And it began because they had both lost a parent. And they came together with a group of friends over a meal to talk about their loss. And what it has turned into is this international organization that focuses on connecting people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so sometimes the immediate reaction of people is like, well, what about people younger? And what about people older? And what they've recognized, and we all have, is that there is a certain amount of support in place for people who are under 20. There's a certain amount of support in place for people who are over 45. I'm turning 41, so I keep pushing it up, but who are over 45. And whether that's been because of family or because of work is a bit more stable, or you have a bit more security in your life at that point, for the most part, speaking in generalization, people who are in their 20s and 30s and early 40s are oftentimes still in transition. The support groups that are usually for people who are 50 above tend to skew a bit older. And so we look at where you are in your grief is also largely a part of where you are in your life, right? So we don't just group those ages together, then we also look at this person who's 20 should probably be with people who are between 20 and 24 and people who have a loss type that is similar to them, but not triggering and somebody who lives in their region, right? All of the things that perhaps you're not used to getting other places. Um, We understand that that me as a 41-year-old, it's not going to work for me to sit in the same space as someone who's 22, right? That creates a dynamic that often gives off advice giving instead of sitting with. And so we really look at all these factors. Um, We now are in the virtual space. And so you're able to sign up for all of these tables. You're also able to sign up for affinity spaces. So like BIPOC space only, Black women who have lost mothers, LGBTQ tables, sober tables. Um, We have all of them now. Um, We've also created something called the buddy system, which is for people who don't feel comfortable showing up online with 10 strangers can be linked to one person by phone. And so you can be texting or emailing that person. We do a lot of training with our hosts, not just on how to hold space for other people's grief, but how to facilitate uncomfortable conversations. Because I think what is interesting about this time is that we are all being forced to have really uncomfortable conversations. And I think it's why some people would rather, let's go back to how things were, right? It's, yeah. We need to have these uncomfortable conversations. One of them being about death and loss and grief mm-hmm. and have them in safe spaces. Um, We host events, uh, one of them being for BIPOC community, and it's called Emotion Through Motion. And it's with the understanding that sometimes talk isn't what we need. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's singing or writing or drumming or moving. And so we connect healers that are all BIPOC. 
And they're able to lead us through sessions that are about moving your emotions through motions of the body. And I began with them as a host. I was somebody who came to them right after my dad died. Well, it was a couple of years after my dad died. But and I opened my home to 10 strangers. And two of them are my best friends now. And then from there, started working with them. And I was working with tables in the South and international. Um, and then from there, went into their director of BIPOC um, well-being. But it's a fantastic organization. And it sounds like it. They just do really, really good work. Yeah, it sounds really powerful. Yeah, it is. It's a, you know, I've seen spaces and what I think is really beautiful about it is that it allows people to show up as complicated and messy. And it allows people to say things like me, like I didn't even like my dad, but I took care of him and I still cry when I think about him. Mm -hmm. You know, it allows people to be honest. It's not always sad. Some of the tables, we have a table that does like a Mexican happy hour once a month. You know, we have tables now that travel together, that have been to each other's weddings, that have been together since 2013. So, you know, our POC table meets weekly on Fridays at 7.30 and that started the week after George Floyd died. We've never met. And that has been a weekly, people can just drop in and there's no charge for this. You know, it's just mm -hmm. come and show up and be in community with people who remind you that you're not alone in this. Wow. Good mm. stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it. And hard stuff, you know, like I think yeah. about, you know, for myself and um, I've experienced a lot of grief in my life and I lost my brother when I was 20 in mm -hmm. a four-wheeling accident. And mm. it was such a messy, devastating, difficult time. And because I didn't have the tools to grieve well or to mm -hmm. step into my grief and accept it, mm -hmm. I tried to outrun it for a decade mm -hmm. of my life. And when I think back on that time, you know, just listening to you speak, it's like, what a powerful and beautiful thing to be able to have a community of people that you can um, connect with. And there were like, there were those moments where I would have people who would try to say things to me and they would try to be yeah. helpful. And I did not want to hear from people who had not been through exactly what I had been through my parents. Yeah. I mean, they'd lost their son. I was not interested in being with them in that process. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that's probably like uh, unhealthy. I, I don't know for sure, but no, I just remember feeling so alone in mm -hmm. my grief as a sibling who lost a sibling. You know, I mm -hmm. didn't meet many people who'd had that experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just thinking about that and the way that, you know, like for me, I have really wrestled with my relationship with grief and my inability to grieve. And I've mm -hmm. learned that so much of that is a product of whiteness and this construct mm -hmm. that I had existed in, you know, unaware. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, just really wrestling through and coming into a place where I could allow myself to grieve, allow mm -hmm. myself, even just to allow myself to feel was a very yeah. scary and strange thing. So um, just a little bit about myself there. <laughs> I think it's interesting what you said about like, it was probably unhealthy that you needed to disconnect from your parents. And it's like, no, it wasn't. 
that is part of grief, right? Is recognizing that I don't grieve like my family members and we're having completely different experiences and yeah. I'm kind of fucking angry at you and I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Like, no, that's just grief. But in all those years since that's happened, right? That you've still carried around, maybe that was unhealthy. It's like, this is why we need to sit with people who are also dealing with the same thing. Yeah. Because if somebody had said to you at the same time that they felt like that, you wouldn't have grown up even, even saying that out of your mouth. Well, that was probably unhealthy. It was not. It's exactly mm-hmm. how you should have been feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's being, it's the mirroring back. It's the being given permission to feel all of this stuff. Yeah. And that is powerful. And I think grief, I think it's one of the most painful things you'll ever experience. I also think when you are able to be led through it in a healthy way, or when you're given the tools to do so, I think it knocks you into a part of yourself that allows you to be so much more, I think, grounded and clear and, and assure of your strength. And I think for me, that's the most important thing is like when you can move through grief and it will be messy. It is not a linear line. I do not believe in the five steps. It is a hundred steps of a roller coaster. I think it's, it's always going to be up and down. But I think when we can figure out how to ride it instead of resisting it, there's a power that you find in yourself. And I think that that is what I hope everyone finds, right? It's not about sitting in your grief and in your sadness. It's like, this leads me to realizing I'm the shit. And to me, if I can make it through my life, recognizing the power that I hold, then every decision after that is a good one, right? Because I'm only making decisions now from a place of, there is nothing somebody else can tell me Mm. about myself. Yeah. Because if I've done this, then what are you telling me? Nothing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah. So, so, um, I'd love to know more about your work as a death doula. Yeah. I don't know anybody who is a death doula. And in all honesty, I've only recently heard of it, let's say in the last five years. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard of a death doula, I was like, Ooh, (laughs) just like super resistant to the idea because of my own, you know, uh, lack of dealing with grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come to really like, just appreciate this vision for something different. So I would yeah. really love to hear from you on your journey into deciding to become one. And just what does it entail? I think, well, I'll tell you one, let's just start with like the death doulas, right? The truth is that every culture has had a death doula. There are your village elder, the medicine woman, the healer, the person that sat, you know, at the base of a hut while someone passed, that was a doula. It was the person that ushers you in or out. It's the person that serves you, right? When I started realizing that I wanted to do that, it was really through sitting also through birth work. And the reason I had become a birth doula, people say to me all the time, like, oh, you must love babies. And I'm like, "Eh, they're cute. I'm really there for the moms. And it was, again, about empowering women and understanding you did not have to have this scary, traumatic experience and that you could, from here forward, be telling women that came after you that this was a beautiful experience. 
and that you brought in life in a way that made you feel strong and not weakened by people around you. And when you think about what birth is, it's just a transition in, right? And then we spend our whole life dying until we die. And there is also this fear around leaving. And whether it is a terminal diagnosis or it is something that we've long known is coming because it's coming with age, you can still die on your terms. And I think what other cultures and, and other parts of the world have understood is that the body was a shell and that there was something really beautiful about honoring the spirit that was within and that that was missing from Western culture and that we have been taught to be scared when someone gets sick, to be scared when someone's dying, then to put them in a box and let's forget about this. Some cultures like the Jewish faith sits Shiva, which is beautiful, right? You sit for days. But there is still in a lot of cultures, that's it. We have our funeral in our wake and we move on. The person who's dying often has very little say in how they are choosing to leave. And so I work with people a number of ways. One is that I'm working with someone who has a terminal illness and they've decided that they don't want to do it in a hospice or they don't want to sit in their house, miserable, surrounded by family that they might not really like right? Listening to people tell them how they should die. And so some of it is about finding them spaces, other places in the world where they can die in peace. Some of it is having them set specific boundaries so they can tell certain family members, we're done here because this is my time now. I don't want you coming back over. Because why should you have to deal with your toxic aunt until the moment you die? Because you don't have you don't feel confident enough to say, I don't want to engage in this anymore. Wow. Right. Mm. Sometimes it's about, I would like to spend the next few weeks drinking really great wine and eating food. And someone needs to tell my wife to stop giving me salad because who gives a shit at this point I'm dying. Right. So sometimes it's about creating a, what is the setting that you want to die in? Who do you actually want around you? What do you want to be eating and drinking? right? If you don't want to be taking medicine anymore, why are you? Why aren't we looking for ways to enjoy this, right? If they're in pain and in bed, then sometimes it's about being at their bedside. So it's reading to them, playing music, massaging, or at least bringing people in that I know can be the physical modality that they need. Like I, I sit with families often and I tell them things that I learned when my parents were dying. So take a picture of their hands and save it to write a letter. If perhaps they're not able to speak, saying all the things you want to say and say it to them at their bedside, they can hear you teaching them the signs of the body. When someone's dying, you know, when the fingernails start to become a bit more blue and it starts to move down the nail, you probably have a couple of days, if not 24 hours, learning these signs so that you can prepare yourself. I go over things like, I wrote my thank you note before my mother died to everyone that I assumed was going to come that I was going to have to send out thank you notes. I wrote it beforehand because I didn't, I knew I was not going to have that headspace to do that. You know, I did stuff like address envelopes, handle bills. I paid the rent. I did all of that before so that I could shut off because this expectation that you should be a functioning human being when you lose your person is bullshit. But people need to be taught that. 
right? That you need to write your letter now to your job. Not, do not expect me. Write your vacation away message now, right? Do all these things. And I, that's what, for me, a death doula is. It's guiding people through this ending so that when this comes to what it inevitably is going to come to, people feel, I'm, I can't move you out of the pain of losing your person, but I can at least get you to the place where you have the space to grieve like you should. And whomever is dying feels like they are dying on their terms. So that's death to lower. That is beautiful. Do you see an increase in people taking on this role of death doula and also people seeking these services? I'll tell you, I don't know if it's because of the algorithm of social media or not, because I feel like I follow so many death doulas. Um, So I feel like it's where you're looking. Um, Like in my world, yes there are plenty of us out there. There are definitely not as many of us as there are birth doulas. And when I say there are plenty, I mean, like, I can maybe think of 25, which to me in the United States is a lot. lot. Yeah. Um, With most of them being black. Yeah. Um, Which I think is also important to note, especially because I feel like within the black and brown communities, there is a real disconnect often from our grief and from our, our permission to access tools that help us survive our mental health. So I think when you can sit with somebody who looks like you, who's telling you this isn't weird and this isn't reserved for somebody else, that this is also for you is important. Um, I think that especially when we think about that historically Black folks have been taught that our bodies don't matter. So why... Why does our grief matter? Our grief is a race with the next headline, right? There's never space held for it. So to be taught even that your body matters, your death matters, what Mm -hmm. happens to you, how you die, how your family deals with you passing, all of that is important, whether or not someone told you that growing up or not. And so I hope that black doulas, black death doulas are coming out of the woodwork. What is a shame is that there aren't a whole lot of training programs for this. Um, And so I do think usually people who have found them in them are also coming out of their own death and grief um, and recognize the need for it in there. My hope is that we all, those of us who are in this field start getting ourselves more pulled together to be like, we all need to be training people. Sure. because I think it's necessary, um, extremely necessary. Yeah. I don't even know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> I don't even know what my question was. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, though, so yes, there. you did. <laughs> I do think you have to look for them. Um, I do think that when you start to look for them, you will see that this work is a bit more prevalent than people really think. But, you know, I think it's getting there. I think one of the things that I hope that everyone, especially in the Western world, starts to recognize is when it comes to grief and loss, you don't need to pick the faith you were raised with and the practices you were raised with to move you through it. Mm-hmm. There could be some beautiful Buddhist tradition that helps you deal with it. There could be some African hymn that helps you deal with it. Becoming more aware of how other cultures ritualize and memorialize 
I think is also really important. We have all the access in the world at our fingertips right now. Mm -hmm. And so not getting stuck in the, it only can happen this way, um, I think is also extending grace to yourself. Of it, This should all be fluid, how you die, how you birth, how you grieve, how you mourn. There is no one right way. And if you can become more accepting and fluid with, there might be ways I've never even thought of that could help me and be more inquisitive in how other people are doing this. Right. Well, I mean, most um, people yeah. don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about Which is grief. Sad. And it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> right. But in this like capitalist consumerist society in the United States, like everything is marketed toward us escaping and running away from it. And so to lean into this is to mm. be very countercultural on yeah. every possible level and to be in a place emotionally where you would desire pushing into something mm. that is terrifying in all likelihood for a lot of people. But I really appreciate like just this expanding the imagination on all of these things. Mm. You know, it's like to think about the fact that you know, you don't have to go with the faith tradition that you started with, you know, for example, mm. but I, when you said that, I thought about, well, when you're in a situation where you're dying and you haven't mm -hmm. thought about things ahead of time and you haven't planned for it, oftentimes it's your family who takes over. And when yes. your family takes over, they're going to insert all of the things that they want and they think they need. Right. Yeah. So I love this vision of you, you know, kind of standing in between and saying, yeah. No, we're doing this on their terms, not on your terms. I mean, it's the you same know? thing as, you know, a birth doula who stands in the hospital room and says, yep. give her a minute to think about this. She does not need to rush towards a C-section. Let's take Amen. some breath, right? right? That's what a birth doula does. The death doula is the same, right? Your cousin needs yeah. to take a break and go take a walk because this isn't about Ooh. her, you know, but people find themselves so undermined in what should be you're the only person who matters in either decision is you. That's it. Nobody yeah. else. But most of us have spent our entire lives listening to other people. Mm -hmm. And so it's also hard to learn how to do that when you are facing an illness or you are impending death, mortality, scary as shit. So people are not also trying to gain confidence. Which right. is why right. it's like, then maybe you need help. And this is also admitting when we need community. I can't do this on my own, right? This mm -hmm. is why you have a doula because you have to surrender a bit and admit that I don't know how to do this, but I know what I want for myself. I just need somebody else to help. Yeah. And to advocate, like I think about the time yeah. that I spent as a birth doula, I was raised by midwives. Mm. I mean, I was a little kid going to home births and, you know, the whole nine, um, but the time I spent as a birth doula, honestly, I feel like I spent almost more time advocating for and fighting against the systems, the structures, yeah. the people, the expectations and all of the bullshit instead mm -hmm. of being able to be with mom and, yeah. and working through and, and, you know, like going through those hard transitions and helping them to keep faith in the fact that their body can do this and was mm -hmm. created to do this. Right. Exactly. And damn it, you know, like all these structures and systems and shoulds and it, ugh, it just, it all whew. happens on the other side and family is rough, right? Right. That's most of our stuff. 
And I think as a birth doula, it's true. It's like, how many times have you been in the room and been like to the partner, you need to go take a walk. Like you need to not be in the room right now to the mother-in-law. Like I need right? to separate. It's oh. the same thing on the other <laughs> side. People yeah. are like, he should be wearing this and you should be doing this. And oh. should, why, why? And mm-hmm. also for people, you know, I think there should be joy, Brian. I have dreams of building a life and death center. And one of them is that you birth on one side and pass on the other and that people who are dying can leave messages for those coming in and that you can be in this space where if you want to drink really great scotch that last week of your life, that that's what you should be able to do because why not? If you want to eat a burger every day, you don't need to be vegan until the day you (laughs) drop dead, right? Like go for it if that's what you want. But these spaces don't exist. It's like we're constructed by these sad, ugly buildings. And then we wonder why people in them die early and sad. Right. Because we don't create an atmosphere of joy. Like there is a way to hold both. There is always a way to hold both. Is it possibly because we, and you know, I hate to paint with broad brushes, but for the sake of the conversation, like, do you think it's because we don't fully live? I think we don't. I think we're terrified where we're living. I think most of us spend our life terrified. I think we're terrified to tell people no. We're terrified to ask for what we want. We're terrified to piss people off. We're terrified to live how we want because people will judge us or we'll be embarrassed. Yes. Right? Everyone who looks at people who make big choices, everyone's like, they're so brave and they're so courageous. Not really. They're just doing what they want. And you have that access to you're making a decision not to, right? right? It's it's a decision, whether it's a scary one or not. It is a choice we actively make to stay stuck or to choose something different. And most people would rather stay stuck. And that's just mm-hmm. a reality. And that's based out of fear, which is why to me, we have to say, as a human, I am probably predestined to be fearful. As a person on this planet, I'm probably going to make choices based on other people's opinions. So I need to become intentional about setting myself up with the people and support and tools that I need that let me be braver. But I think even that has to be a decision that you make for yourself. I think when you live small, you look at death as just this other sad thing that happens to you. And I think when you leave, when you live big, you look at death as this like beautiful thing that might fit you out into an even greater world. And you Mm. get a little bit like, it's going to get really comfortable in this space because it's happening, right? Like we are ignoring the inevitable, never gets you past it. Like it's going to show up. Yeah. So I think this would be a really good segue into the story of you traveling Mm. the country in a bus. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I was living in Miami, Florida and was at the time I had just spent a few, it was like a month or so in Italy and I was obsessed and I thought I was going to immediately pack my bags and go Airbnb a place. And that I met a man and he was planning on building a houseboat at the time. And it was like, hmm, there's another way to live, right? And I started going on YouTube and looking at tiny house festivals and 
And realizing that I was not the only person thinking about this, and there was actually an entire community of van dwellers and schoolie livers. And, and I was like, wow, I had no idea that this community even existed. And that while there were some people that were living it one way, there were also people were, who were living it like me, which I called like the structured adventurous, which is like, I still need to work. So I need Wi-Fi. And I like to live a certain way. I want to be on the road, but I'm still looking to live nicely, you know? Um, and I was lucky enough that I had a partner and together we were able to build a truly beautiful bus on wheels. And it was a home and it was gorgeous. Um, and then partnered with a number of corporations, 23 exact, and brought them on as sponsors um, and did this tour around the U.S. What happened midway through the tour is that the civil rights movement erupted. Um, and so it started as me talking and, and meeting with women and talking about wellness to observing race city by city and state by state and recognizing that we were now two Black people traveling in what is primarily a white forward space, which, which are the RV bus van folks, right? Very few people of color were, were out there doing it, were visible, and we certainly were not expected to show up. And that's what I quickly recognized. Um, and so it became a journal and diary of how race was showing up around the country during this. And how there were some places and how differently it changed how we traveled. Mm. You know, it went from showing up in some spaces and recognizing immediately we showed up in Paw Paw, Michigan which I think is one of the most racist places on the country. Um, and when you do their research, they have a history of white supremacy there and the KKK presence. I'm from Michigan. And uh, Papa is rough. And we pulled up and got out of the bus to walk my dog. Within five minutes of coming back to the bus, we're the only people in a playground park. And I looked outside the window and there was a pickup truck pulled up on one side that had blocked us in. And then I realized that a pickup truck had pulled up on the other side and blocked us in. And mm -hmm. we had two cop cars that were facing us. They came up to our door, banged on the door, told us that we were suspicious. Mind you, we were in a beautiful Sherman Williams sponsored solar panels. Not that any of this should matter, but right. nothing about this bus. It said bliss out on it. It's all white. Was this aggressive even from the outside? Um, we're also at a playground and it was three o'clock in the afternoon and we're asked to leave. Um, and this continued in numerous places. Um, there were places, you know, it got to the point where the dinner party, I came into a meeting into our one hour of our weekly meetings after being asked by the second people, they wanted to also take our personal information. Um, and I was like, absolutely not. And when I asked, he said something like, well, we have a requirement that when people show up in this town, we, I mean, these are the things oh, that we were hearing that was no. in Utah, another space in Utah. We were parked there all day long. They showed up at 11 o'clock at night and said that the sheriff had been watching us all day and he wanted us to leave. This was Moab, Utah. Now it's, now Moab, Utah is known for RVers, for buses, for and so he had watched a black couple all day who were working and walking. I mean, we were doing nothing. We walked to the store maybe and came back. 
were parked in a public parking lot and were asked to move. And I'm like, it's 11 o'clock at night and it's raining. And they drove behind us to escort us out of town to arrest us. These are the things that were happening with cops. I was standing outside barefoot and they wanted all of my information. You know, times when we realized like I had to be the one to talk to cops because it was too terrifying to let my husband walk outside of the bus. He couldn't go to the store with a mask on in a small town in the Midwest because you're already black and now you have a mask on your face. I mean, it was, you know, I showed up at one point in this meeting, like I mentioned, and they had to, and I call it like the dinner party underground railroad. They had to call strangers. It was like a mass call to anyone who lived near Michigan so that we could come stay in their driveway because it felt like we were being hunted. And it was a minister from the Fetzer Institute who reached out, never met her, her and her lovely wife. And we went and stayed there for a month on their property hidden behind trees because it was too stressful to be back out on the road because it felt like they were, we were being chased. I mean, it was, and it was a real clear, what was interesting was like, I also follow so many schooly van bus people and how every white account was like in the same places we were hanging out, taking walks, taking pictures, canoeing, kayaking. And we couldn't even park in a parking lot was the difference of the experience that we were all having while doing the same thing. And the freedoms that we were not allowed when we were just trying to be as free as those people. I mean, it was, I'm in Curacao now because it was for mental health. It felt like, you know, they tell you when love is no longer being served at the table, leave. And America felt like I can fight better from someplace else. Yeah. But this is unhealthy to be forced to deal with, with this amount of, of stress and a violence and aggression and, yeah. and still be expected to show up for others. I can't do both. No. Um, so it was amazing in that I love tiny living. I think everyone should experience building their own home and driving around in it. I think there are beautiful places to see. You know, it taught us a lot, but we also showed up in some super white places that were super friendly and kind. It was not all ugly. You know, we showed up in places where we were reminded of how beautiful humanity was. Um, but it was a real reminder of how ugly it could be. Driving through, the chi- through Chicago, you know, when they had passed out Homeland Security, um, and tanks were rolling through the streets. We were parked there when that was happening. You know, it was, it was an intense first look. Yeah. So when did you end up in, it's Curacao? Yes. I moved here on April 1st. So tell me about that decision. It's both grief and mental health related. You know, Curacao was my mom. My mom visited here before she died. And my family's from the West Indies, but we're from Montserrat. And Curacao is right by Aruba and Bonaire. It's right off the coast of Venezuela. And when my mother came here, she said that she felt something just extremely holy about this place. And she died before I had time to really ask her about why she had even chosen Curacao and like 
why she came. She was came here basically with a girlfriend, but she hadn't traveled with just a friend before. Um, and so it was a strange decision for her to have even made, but she came back feeling like so changed and healed. And throughout the years of her passing, I kept feeling that I should come here. Um, and I've done a lot of traveling and lived in a number of places. And there was some, I'd never even been here. And there was something about the grief and death work should happen here. And that there was something ancestral healing wise that needed to happen here. And so I followed my gut um, and booked an Airbnb. I mean, I have a laptop. I work online. We're all working online mostly. Right. So it was, if no time, but now, why not? Um, mm -hmm. And it really is that easy. You book an Airbnb and you just take your laptop and go. And I feel like I've landed in the place where I need to be and just very peaceful and grounded. And there's something about this island that that just feels like the right space. And I think you should listen to when your gut tells you to do something. Yeah. Wow. How long will you be there? Um, oh. My plan is to be here forever. My plan is to build the center here, but I'm also really? open. Yeah. Like I want to wow. do it here. And part of why I'd come and done this space was like, I want to drive around the Island. I don't know where I want to be on this Island. And I feel like the people that will be involved in that will come now that I've opened that door and, you know, some of it's just about being open to receiving and like, I need to just open the door and walk through it and mm -hmm. the right people will show up. And the more you talk about it, the more you draw it towards you. Right. But it feels like it'll happen here. So after six months, you have to leave for a visa, but you can just hop mm -hmm. to another island and come back. So, oh, nice. And then it resets it. Um, eventually I'll have to make a permanent decision. But for now, I'm like, hmm, I'm going to hang out for nine months. And hopefully by then I'll have a better idea of where on the island I like to be. If I'm ready to buy, then great. If not, you Airbnb another place for another nine months and figure it out. But I would like to stay. I mean, I love it from, I've been here a month so, but it feels yeah. like a good landing space. And you've lived abroad before? So I spent time in India and Guatemala I was in Costa Rica for a while. Um, Italy, I bounced around a lot. I've just been very like America has, you know, I love America. I, I was born there. I was born in Brooklyn. I've lived there my whole life. But there's also something you said, I think when you start traveling that you're like, America's great, but so are other places. Right. And, <laughs> and they're handling things so much better than we are. Oh, my. Um, mm -hmm. And being a person of color traveling, there is such usually I have I have always experienced such joy, whether that was in staring at me and asking if they could take a picture with me or calling me chocolata or just welcoming me because I look like them there is an immediate ease in life not being in America. Um, and that feels good in my soul. You know, it feels good to be places. I saw a cop the other day. He doesn't have a gun or a flashlight. I mean, he's just a belt and some pants. That's Imagine their whole that. Do you know how nice it is? And it's interesting. I have another, I know another woman who's expatted here. And she called me because a cop pulled up behind her. He wasn't pulling her over. He was just sitting at a light. But she's from New York and she immediately went into fright mode. 
And she said he swerved around her and met up with this other cop car and they got out and they were high-fiving each other. It was some like thing between them. And she's like, they were both wearing shorts and like polo shirts. And she had to pull over though. And she cried because this is what we're going through. And there is trauma. And Mm. to be in a place where the cops are there literally just to show up if you need them and are not even prepared to inflict any sort of harm on you is such an, a, a beautiful feeling. Um, but yeah, other countries have just figured this out. I mean, it's just, it's a joy to be abroad. America needs to get their shit together. Seriously. We lived in uh, China on two different occasions. Mm. So we were in Shanghai for close to five years the first time. And we went back for three years, but stayed only one. And we kind of read the writing on the wall initially and thought, you know, we're going to be lucky if we squeak six months out of this. Mm -hmm. But um, my husband was working for a company and he uh, took like he got a severance for six months. And Mm. I just looked at him and I'm like, why don't we go to Europe? You know, we have lots of friends and people we know through Europe. We had two kids who were five years old at the time. And it felt right. And I struggled a little bit with like feeling irresponsible in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, cause I've got these kids who need to start school, but we're driving, you know, we rented a car and drove around for six weeks and we only stayed in a hotel two nights. Like everywhere yeah. we went, we connected with people and that trip changed us. We've always mm-hmm. had wanderlust. We've always wanted to live abroad something happened in that space for us where we knew like coming back to the U S like, this isn't what we want. And there's something more, you know, Mm -hmm. like I actually, at the time, my, one of my, yeah, my son had epilepsy and had Mm -hmm. a lot of other medical things going on. And we were really like kind of freaked out about it. And there was a potential we could move to Germany. And so I had to sit and interview my friends in Germany and ask, Mm. like, how is the medical system? How is, you know, will I Mm. have care for my child? And the things that I learned in really deeply traveling specifically within Germany, I unlearned so many of the things that had just been ingrained in me that I thought I knew about healthcare systems and the way things were done. And I had bought into this idea that the United States was like the pinnacle of healthcare. And now, oh, oh. isn't it unbelievable? You know, I, I often say, I'm like, the bullshit we have been fed into thinking that we were on the forefront of anything. You know, this came out of the movie industry, this belief that America right? was this, like, we have figured it out. We have not. We are behind mm-hmm. every other country in most things, if not all. And I think it's exactly what you said. Travel allows you to realize there's more. If you enjoyed that conversation, the good news is there's a part two. The bad news is I lost my internet connection right at this point. So it was another week before Sundari and I could reconnect and finish up. And where I thought we were going to have a 15-minute conversation to wrap things up, we ended up having about another hour-long conversation. So lucky for us, there's this wonderful part two, so you can go and listen to it now. And I just wanted to thank those of you who have been listening. Welcome to new listeners. 
It would be wonderful if you would share this with your friends, family, and internet strangers if you so desire. It would also be wonderful if you go and leave a review and rate the podcast because that really helps us in the algorithm. Mm-hmm.